Hey everybody, this is Zach. Hey, this is the person that's not Zach. <laughs> Known as uh, Richard, I guess. Richard that's Prime. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Richard Prime failed. This is uh, the second or third game. <laughs> um yeah. so uh yeah today we're going to be uh, discussing resident evil 7 biohazard the uh the yeah i i which i've only yeah. ever seen this as re7 apparently in america it was subtitled biohazard yeah mm -hmm. surprised yeah. me <laughs> but yeah. um but uh yeah first uh let's talk about some of the stuff that we have been doing um did you want to go first this time or did you want me to um yeah yeah go first uh mainly i've been uh starting work so did a lot of new work moved to new company all that jazz so that's occupied a lot of my brain space uh other than that i've been playing dying light uh two um and i finished the campaign oh, i think about nice. two days ago uh, yeah, about two nights ago. Um, so there wasn't 500 hours worth of story. <laughs> no, no. And they, you know, they said afterwards, it's like full game, etc. Um, there's plenty of side quests and stuff that I could do to make up more time. I think, what is, what is my time? Would you envision like it's maybe like a 30 or 40 hour game though? Um... Hard to say. I, I never I never line up with with that because there's I think my official time logged is maybe like sixty or seventy hours. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, I imagine if you just do story quests, yes, uh, that that could be your experience. And if you're <clears throat> either really great at the game yeah. or you know are very mechanically gifted. And don't have to do like a restart or etc. Sure. You know, and play certain sections over and over again. What's really amazing, um, finishing that the Dying Light Two game, it has to do with two separate kinds of experiences uh, between the Dying Light Two and Dying Light One. And I played a little bit of Dying Light 1 again just to kind of refresh my mechanics. And even a couple months before Dying Light 2 came out, I was still playing Dying Light 1. Um, I'd say maybe like seven months before. Uh, a little bit of last year, finishing up most of the campaign. And I think it's it's... The um, differences uh, mechanically from the kind of experience that they want is, I think, what you you get this in in some games. It, it's not a game that I have an experience with this, other than recently. That we've been talking about games and their sequels, especially in the context of Resident Evil, and how the games will evolve and change. And there's so many different archetypes for like an RE game. Like having a fixed camera angle is a model of how to do a Resident Evil game. Um, there's even mods out 
for the PC uh, version of like RA2, mm. where fans have made it to where it can be a fixed angle experience. Like they've they've frozen the camera angle in certain ways, and you're seeing yourself from a fully yeah. like okay, this is the shot. Maybe on this section they'll do underneath. I imagine what they probably did is they tried to model it as closely as they could to the original RE2. I haven't played the mod, even though I could, um, by just installing it and seeing how it is. So there's archetypes for different versions yeah. and kinds of Resident Evil games that we've been kind of going over. You know, there's uh, a mix of action and um, humor, like intentional humor, um, and... A little bit of spookiness, but more yeah, like an action adventure with some like dramatic theater horror elements, which is what you get like in RE4, you know. So it's intentionally humorous. Whereas if you go to RE2, 3, and then 1, um, non remakes, there's no real humor element there other than the unintentional kind of humor that comes from, you know, RE2. <laughs> yeah, boulder punching in five, but intentionally, just in reference to like four and then one, two, three, like the voice acting in one, two, and three can be really hilarious, uh, especially when that section, um, I forget what his name is, um, the other police officer that survives in RE2, who was be like your superior? Marvin, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Marvin, that's what it is. Yeah. So the original voice acting in RE2 with Marvin, he's like, <laughs> you know, and he's talking about Chief Irons. Yeah. You know, that kind of hammy voice acting for, you know, they didn't have any idea of context or whatever. And it's, it's charming in its own way. So four first had like some of that humor, some kind of tongue in cheek you know, over the top. That was a new thing for the series, I think. Um, so, just wanted to tie it back into our larger arc. That we oh, did. same. same. But with Dying Light, <laughs> I invested a lot of time in the first game, like well over 100 hours, you know, most most likely. Yeah. Especially with, with the DLC, um, you know, the following that comes after and uh, just the new mechanics and et cetera that, that gets set up for that kind of experience. And one thing that struck me really strongly going back to Dying Light 1, and I, I felt this when I was playing Dying Light 2, in that it's a very different experience because there's a there's a tier and there's a there's a calling for fans of genres, fans of games, bigger and better, etc. Um, where you have like these post-apocalyptic games, which, you know, you have like Fallout 1, 2, and 3, etc. I'll talk a little bit about Fallout 3 in a second in relation to this. But with Dying Light 1, there's not any moments in time really where you feel like you're surrounded by like a society or like other people like you're very very alone you're very very isolated and you're isolated in exploring 
in an area that's just full of, you know, the infected, oh, okay. as they call them there. And, you know, virals and volatiles and et cetera. And you feel very alone and very yeah. you know, put upon. And with two, the bigger and better mantra is, okay, let's populate this world. Let's like fill it with people. Um, one, because it's supposed to be like you're a pilgrim, which is basically just someone who travels to do odd jobs or carry messages, etc. Um, you know, tasks kind of like a hand for hire. Um, and so there's a society here in the city, Villador and Old Villador. And you originally go to Old Villador, which is, you know, a little bit smaller. The skyscrapers aren't as tall and et cetera, but it's populated with people. Like you interact with more bandits than you would in the original Dying Light. Um, there's rooftop areas, so people are like growing crops and et cetera on the rooftops, and there's safe points and safe spots and et cetera. So you feel much more surrounded by NPCs. And I see the the draw for that in that, okay, let's make this feel like a lived-in world because this is what we were trying to push for. Uh, one, let's make this different, which makes sense. Um, and two, let's push uh, engagement and stories and et cetera. So when you're playing Dying Light 1, in my experience, interacting with people and like having conversations, interacting with people, if it's not just like the random survivors that are like stuck somewhere and need you to help them, but like actual scripted like engagements where it's like a plot point or et cetera, is very rare. Uh, so when you meet someone and interact, like the camera shifts to their face, like you start talking, you turn off, you know, your flashlight gets turned off, which you know, normally you have on all the time. And so it feels like those experiences are uh, more rare in occurrence. Um, and so it's the game mechanic is sort of set up in a way where you're exploring the world, you can jump around, you can hop on things. Oh, look at this canister. Oh, look at this car. Let me get this fuel. You're always kind of interacting with the environment. Um, and there's a lot of that too, but you you really feel like an isolated sort of explorer. You know, you, it's a very John Romero kind of esque sort of feel, which makes sense with the music and which makes sense with the hordes of zombies and et cetera. If you've seen you know, Old Dawn of the Dead, et cetera. Um, isolation is a, a very prominent thing. For two, you have more interaction with these different sects and people and just NPCs that have dialogue. Um, and so like you walk past them, maybe they say something new or different. You know, maybe they don't, you know, because there's only so many things that are scripted. Um, and there's rooftop points where people are like sur sitting surrounded by a fire or they're surrounding a fire. Yeah. <laughs> and you can sit and listen to like a little story. Like you can actually have a button to press sit and then you can listen to whoever's talking. And usually they'll add a little bit of color and some kind of environmental stuff. I did it maybe like three or four times. Um, and uh, yeah, 
So it's just much more lived in. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's just a very different vibe interacting with um, the land and everything there. Because you, with Dying Light 1, they're, the charm of it is like, I think being in like a Romero-esque kind of situation where you're just like running, you're trying to survive. Unless you're really, really powerful, you know, you don't necessarily want to be out at night, you know, <laughs> you know, especially like in the following, um, you know, because it's just like fields and fields and heaven forbid you're, you know, you're not really strong level because you can actually go to the following, I think, after completing like a very small section of the first part of the game. Like you don't actually need to go and like beat the whole first game. So you could go to the following really early. Um, Which I didn't know because I think I had borrowed it from you the first time I played it. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, this new yeah, map yeah. opened up. And I got my shit rocked. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm going to stay in this mm -hmm. section. <laughs> yeah. Because there's nowhere to escape. And if you don't have the buggy set up right, and the first couple, even playing um, the first half, the non-DLC portion, the first couple of uh, sections, uh, quests that you get sent on in the following are rather, can be rather yeah. difficult, especially because you're not aware of like where you need to be or where you're supposed to go. And so one of those first quests is like you're in a buggy you got to do this at night. You have like a time limit. Yeah. And you're just like driving through. Your buggy's not as fast as it could be. You know, it doesn't have as much fuel as it'll eventually be able to. You don't have any kind of equipment or anything on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, virals will follow you. You know, the uh, the volatiles will follow you as well. Um, I believe those are the big hulking ones. In the know, middle of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and they'll just rock you, you know? Um, and you're just like stuck out, you know, just like yeah. in the middle of nowhere. You can't even climb on something to try to get, depending on where you're at, to get sort of an advantage. And there's just as many volatiles uh, as there are in uh, the first part of Which I have to say is an interesting way to take the DLC where, you know, the first, the, the main game is basically all about verticality. And then mm -hmm. in the DLC yeah. going, yeah, all that shit you, you spent the time mastering doesn't matter. <laughs> We're going to take away all of the verticality from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And being able to hide, you know, because yeah. the volatiles come out and they're really big and they have the little scope view. Yeah. And you can usually hide behind a building or hide behind something and crouch if one's really close. Um, or you can kind of make it like above ground, maybe where you're not right in their line of sight. Yeah. Um, but when you're walking like through like a field of wheat, you're just like exposed like a nerve. And there are places, of course, that you can climb. They're few and, and far between, top, yeah. But you don't have, like, constant, like, safe places, yeah. which is what the first part of the game kind of trains you. Yeah. Yeah. The first part of the game kind of trains you to do that stay off the ground. Like, stick to the rooftops, you know? And so the, the following DLC I thought was really great in 
turning the mechanic on its head. So in any case, in comparison to Dying Light 2, there's just a lot of NPCs and there's not really a ton of interaction that you do with just like the, uh, I'll just call them like environment color NPCs. They're just there to like say something or to be forever sawing a log in half for all of eternity. Uh, I pointed out to my wife, I don't know why they do that animation for characters because it's like, you're going to pass by them and see these two guys, this impossible log, mm. you know, that they're trying to saw in half. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like you're exploring in the same way um, because it doesn't feel like, like a wasteland. It's like built up from a wasteland which is what you'd expect in a world that they've already experienced the apocalypse. People congregate in like a city, they've built fortifications. Um, but it feels more like, uh, you know, watching, watching my wife play like Assassin's Creed and there being like little centers where people are, you can interact and etc. So it's, it's more of a mishmash of more of, uh, you know, more modern kind of open world game elements. You know, you want NPCs to provide color and etc. And it feels less like I'm a lot of my game experience was just like running across freeways and dying like one. Just running across freeways, you know, and trying to make my way to a point or just see what was at the end of the freeway, you know. Um and because this is a lived-in city, there's still stuff and places to explore, but it's more like I'm yeah. going from one place of civilization to another place of civilization. Like I'm going from one safe space to another. There's a lot more shops, you know, up on the roofs. Um, so what I'm really interested in, and this I mentioned this at the beginning, is that playing Dying Light, I played it several years after it came out, um, especially on PC, which is where I mostly played it, um, and finished it. I played it a little bit on PS4, and um, then I think I got a PC, and I, I rebought it for PC because I had a suit of PC I wanted to try out. And so... It was a, a very polished experience. The DLC was already there. They had worked out a lot of kinks and bugs. They had figured out, okay, let's add these kind of events that are going to happen. Um, and so it was more, more like, okay, this is what the game eventually became, you know, sort of experience. Um, and so playing Dying Light 2 very shortly after its release, they, you know, it, advise they have like a five-year plan and I don't doubt it because they supported Dying Light 1 all the way up until Dying Light 2 came out. Um, and there's still events, I, I think in Dying Light 1, like just regular little small events that happen to keep people engaged or interested. You know, there's like a Super Crane event um, which happens all the time regularly other than their holiday events where like all your punches and kicks are like super powered. 
so you can like punch the infected and they just like fly you know you kick them they just like fly across the screen um or you have like endless ability to use your um grappling hook so it's what the game became is what i played with island one so i want to see in time what are they based on their feedback because they do listen a lot to that and the player interaction and etc and keeping people engaged and playing playing it what do they envision they want this to become because uh, there's still a full game there and there's still a lot you can do in the environment yeah and there's so much parkour stuff that they added that I would have to like really learn to like take full advantage of it, which is cool. You know, it's it's cool to do that as well. Because um, hmm. there's definitely more moves. But playing, going back and playing Dante One feels like okay, coming back home. Yeah. You know, because I'm very familiar with the game and the environment, etc. And Dante Light Two was hmm. still just more like. A rewarding experience and I was satisfied playing it but I want to see where they want to take that like what else are they going to do in that regard um, so that's kind of the thing um, I don't really give uh, games like a grade or like a score or anything yeah. like that um, but I enjoyed my game time um, one thing I thought was really interesting was how uh, minimized the volatiles were in Dying Light 2. They're really, in my playthrough, which I think ended up being like 70 hours or something like that when I looked at the game time, they're not just out like roaming at night all the time, you know, with like their little scope things. You have these other things called howlers, which you can avoid pretty easily. But if the howlers see you and activate, they just yell. They don't attack you, and then the virals start coming in and trying to attack you. The really fast, you know, motivated ones. Um, but the volatiles are usually just in, in indoor areas, like very indoor, isolated areas. Um, and they're usually like a bunch of them. And so when you see them, they are very heavily powered and at the end of the game you know um there's one section near the end of the game where god there must have been like nine or ten of them in one space and i just did not have enough um firepower to kill them all um because i was at a point where you know i didn't have enough explosives to take them out um the molotovs are basically useless against them and um, my weapons were just not powerful enough to just like one hit KO or anything like that. I could kill them. The tactic was more like the UV flashlight, stun them, and then hit them. But that's only if there's one of them. If there's multiple, then there's other ones hitting you on the side uh, before you're able to just take out one. Okay. So they're very imposing, but they aren't as prominent as they are in the original Dying Light, which I think was part of oh, nice. people not wanting to go out and explore at night, because you don't want to run into like the volatiles. There's a lot of people that play the original game um, 
even now, some veteran people, especially when you get powerful enough, they're not really that big a deal in the first dying light. But there's a lot of people that originally played the original game, and it's like, well, I don't want to go out at night and face like possibly four or five, six volatiles just running after me after a second because um, I just can't take them out. So people would just sleep and just explore during the during the day. Um, but with two, you just stick to the rooftops, and you're pretty fine. I did I did a lot more exploring much more early on in the second game than I did in the first game. And that was something they wanted to encourage. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'll kind of around 25 minutes. We kind of ended around there. Um, so, yeah, fun game. Um, I'll see where it goes. I'll obviously... I bought like the super deluxe DLC version, so whenever they release new stuff, I'll I'll see it when it comes up, and it'll just be part of my gameplay. Yeah, I'm always hesitant to do that because I, I got burned on. I can't think. I can't remember which game it was, mm-hmm. but it was on PS3, I think, where it's like, yeah, you buy a season pass for like fifty dollars, and it's like, okay, I'll I'll do the season pass, and like two one-hour things came out and then it's done it's like well that's <laughs> bullshit <laughs> i mean technically yeah. is probably not going to but I, I, over, like especially on something like dying like two like it's no no that's a, a much different thing yeah. than immemorable game from 15 years ago <laughs> yeah. yeah and i think part of it too is the reason i did that uh it's just in relation to um, my experience with the first Dying Light and like, oh yeah, if they release something like the following, I want to see that. You know, I'm going to want it anyways. You know, if they release like some other little bit of DLC or something, etc., you know, um, you know, I'm going to want to see what that is. Um, so it's I'm just I'm already bought in in that regard. And uh, two, I just wanted to support a company that, right. you know, whose games brought me a lot of, you know, joy uh, and experience and, you know, a lot of fun times, you know. Um, even, even my wife, you know, getting to watch me play the game, you know, seeing me enjoy myself, getting that experience from it. Um, you know, there's a shared kind of nature of that. So, Yeah. I hit the buy button and I was like... Well, it's always good when you can find something that you're just, like, wanting to dive into and mm-hmm. focus on that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still want to... I still want to play some more. The side quests are more prominent uh, because that's... People in mobile games always yeah. kind of want that. Um, I feel like they're... The world is less uh engaging drawing me in um but there's more to do so <laughs> sorry my dog just uh, got a bath was very upset about it i think my wife is getting her the dog a bath so yeah i want to come at it because especially with a game like this it's one of those things that yeah. you come 
at least for me, with games that I've right. I've, I've been following this for like years since it was announced. Mm. Um, you have so many expectations, and expectations definitely color your experience. And so, especially once you finish um, the main story, and you're like, okay, I don't have as much expectations yeah. anymore now. So let me just see what are some of these other kind of experiences I can get into. Whether like DLC or learn more about these parkour combat things, turn the difficulty scale way high, maybe fight some enemies, things like that. Um, there's one. Yeah. Well, and it's also hard to find that balance that I'm, I'm sure, you know, Techland is, is very good at it walking that narrow line but like you know like assassin's creed games for example mm -hmm. have side quests but not so many that it's just like okay what am i doing like <laughs> what am i doing here um far cry that's the i don't know if you've played any of those there are so no. many side quests it's <laughs> ridiculous and all of them like the, the majority of them are like yeah um pick up this letter great did you read it mm -hmm. awesome good job oh i left my toothbrush yeah. in another map you're gonna have to go to another map to get that could you get mm -hmm. it for me it's like come on man mm -hmm. like, this is not i you know i want to get that, use that your uh, finger. sweet sweet trophy achievement but not that bad you know like Yeah. yeah exactly. I would probably suggest not try to get that sweet, sweet trophy achievement here. If there is 500 hours of maybe 70 hours of actual gameplay, if you're the kind of game player like me, um, and then like an additional 400 hours of fetch quests and things like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm looking here and Dying Light 2 on how long to beat, like, main story is 22 and a half, main and extras is 43 and a half, and then completionist is 94 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, for me, a lot of that feels like, okay, how long does it take to sleep with someone? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, just, it just yeah. depends on what kind of experience <laughs> no, exactly, you have yeah. there. No, well, and... Like, you want to have two hours of foreplay <laughs> or just like, you know, hope and chump and then, yeah. you know, well, yeah, go and leave I mean, or you know, that There's you know, a, a lot of games that I've seen on there where it's just like, I, I don't think this game is that short, actually. Like, um... I, I've started and stopped several times, but the um, you know the the Far Cry Five game, um, like I want to say it's how long to beat is like because I was curious based on the size of the maps, it's like yeah like fifteen hours or something like that, and I'm like, mm, <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> I think whoever did that had some cheat codes going <laughs> um they they had their uh their ps4 version of a game genie uh running for them um <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. I think if you're a really, really good player, you know, extreme mechanical aptitude, uh, you pick up on all that, and you're just going, like, running towards the end, like some version of, like, a speed run, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, you could technically do it, like, the, the um, a lot of the quests are so split up amongst that map, though, that, like, you would have to be doing fast travel to fast travel, and it's like, well, then why, like, why bother setting the game in Montana with these fantastic views if you don't want me to look at them? If I'm just going from point to point and not looking yeah. at anything in between. I only play games to complete them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, so I, I think they're definitely, I think they're handy in that respect to give an idea yeah. of like how much material is there. And then it's just dependent on how you approach that sort of material. But yeah, and it's... It, I, I don't know how much I, I trust it necessarily. It's just like like we had a, a discussion about um, criticism and how, how useful it is at the end of the day. And yeah, like I, I, I don't know how useful that is necessarily, but it's it's funny. It's better on, um, which I mean, I, I know why is because it's so railroaded. It's better on games like, you know, like God of War and stuff, because there is a definite starting point and end point. Like, open world games are just mm -hmm. very, very difficult, I would assume. For them oh, yeah, yeah. Because, like, they can look at the script for the games, too, or request a script, since I guess they're a press outfit now. Yeah. Um, and go, oh, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, this is 18 hours worth of game or whatever. But in reality, <laughs> not so much. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's. I think that's a good point in relation to open world games for sure. Yes, it really depends on approach. Some people uh, playing Skyrim, um, you know, have over a thousand hours into it, and they they still haven't beaten the main story quest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never played the main story. I mean, I've, I've only ever watched someone mm -hmm. else play the game, but like my wife has played it now, I think on three different mm -hmm. systems. And I don't think I've ever seen this, the actual like campaign yeah. he played. It's one of those like make your own fun type games, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, I don't think obviously Dying Light isn't, that kind of game because um, there's so much focus in a game like Skyrim not to go too far on making the outside interactions and other stuff interesting you know and making them like yeah I think it really a lot of it has to do with the writing you know um, you know it has to do with the writing and it has to do with just like overall design because even like the menus and stuff in Skyrim sure, sure, yeah. are like really great with like the way you like power up in the skill tree. It's just like engaging to, to go ahead and do that. So a lot of props to, you know, all the people involved in that. Um, yeah. Dying Light is more like mechanical, doing this, running around, you know, uh, some of my best experiences in Dying Light are going to areas that 
were just way too high level for me. Um, <laughs> trying to figure it out. Yeah, and trying to like lame out the AI <laughs> or the environments um, in order to figure out how to beat them. That one section that I was saying that had all the volatiles, um, I, I spent more time on that than I did on the final boss, for sure. Because I was like, okay, how can I take and get rid of these like 12 volatiles or whatever that are in there? Uh, yeah, for a second, like, we can rid of my Sure, sure, sure. Um, yeah, well, so, uh, I'm presumably that was the, uh, the end of your Mimi knees, um, for this section. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could go on forever <laughs> in that regard. Okay, well, I'll, I'll kind of breeze point. through mine and touch lightly. Um, so I finally went through and watched, uh, uh, for a either birthday or Christmas present, I forget which, my uh, wife got me a copy of all of the Dragonheart films <laughs> on home media release. Um, and I have to say, those are fantastic, barring um, just the second one. The second one's not... I, I have a feeling that it was intended for a different um, franchise, maybe? Um, in that it, it doesn't seem to like they, they make passing references, but for the most part, it seems to be its own little like self-contained story. Um, whereas, you know, I'm looking at now. Yeah. A new beginning is the name of that one came out in 2000, um, which is really surprising because the CG in it is, eh, you know, um, but, you know, they keep cranking those movies out. Um, the, let's see, so 96, 2000, 2015, 2017, and 2020 uh, was the last time one came out. Um, and it's funny, it's it's one of these franchises where the movies, at, at least after the first one, because, you know, the first one has, you know, Sean Connery. Um, yeah, Highlander, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> close Dragonheart. heart um, uh the uh yeah no sean connery dennis quay david thewlis uh is is in there pete postlewaite um and then yeah the second one moves to uh a, a monastery with a bunch of no names in what is clearly some random eastern european country um and then you know the most recent three uh you know they've got good actors like they've got um uh respectively ben kingsley patrick stewart and helena bonham carter voicing Wait, the there's, dragons there's three dragon heart movies there's five what yeah yeah so so what what i was saying is is that you know the first one it's it's interesting so <laughs> so there's five of them the first one is kind of standalone and you can tell it was kind of like meant to be standalone. The second one feels like it was intended to be something else, like maybe a, like a kid's movie. Uh, also, I think that it is um, uh, PG. So I think it was intended for kids and they're just like, well, shit, we've got this franchise IP. We can just slap this on it um, because like no one in that movie is in any of the other films <laughs> um it's also less than feature length 
um, too, which makes me think, again, it was meant mm-hmm. to be a TV movie or a movie for kids or something like that, and it just got re, uh, rebranded. But, um, yeah, no, the, uh, the third, fourth, and fifth one all have Ben Kingsley, Patrick Stewart, and, uh, <laughs> and Helena Bonham Carter doing voices as dragons. Um, it's, it's really fascinating that they would do this, but I don't know if it's, because I'm, I'm looking at the cast list, and I don't see anyone else that I recognize, and I'm kind of thinking it's one of those situations where, like, you know, Bruce Willis being in, I think, 11 movies this year, um, where he, you know, they show up to set and they're like, great, you're paying us $5 million, you got us for 48 hours. That's how long we're doing it. And then all of the other budget is is obviously taken up by them and, and the stuff that goes into making the movie. Um, and so they're, they're kind of shooting around these people's schedules, I'm guessing. Wow. <laughs> Um, but no, like the first one, I don't know if you've ever seen the first one. Um, it came out when I was about 10 and super obsessed with dinosaurs. And so, <laughs> um, it was, it was, it like, it, I was like, oh, cool. Dinosaurs. Oh, wait, knights. Wait, dragons. Fantasy's a thing. <laughs> and it just sent me down the road. Um, that I bought now. Um, I yeah. So I, I yeah. recommend that it's just like a magical one and maybe the last three ones. <laughs> if you're if you're interested, the second one you could skip. Um, the other things I did. Speaking of throwbacks, is Netflix a few years ago made these uh, standalone episodes of of uh, TV shows um, from way back. So one of them was Rocco's Modern Life. And the other one was yeah. Invader Zim, right? Yeah, I saw the Rocco's one. Weird. It, that weird, one was weird. strange. Like, so it's very critically praised, right? And I don't know if mm-hmm. when it was on the air, like, I remember it being racy to the, like, past what Ren and Stimpy would be, but not in a gross way. Yeah, right? just conceptually. Like, it yeah. was conceptually more more intended for adults, but, like, I watched it as a kid and thought it was funny. Um, but like hearing the opening theme music as an adult after not having heard it in 25, 30 years, I was just like, this is weird. Like they have the B-52s, but they're all pitch shifted. And it, it like, it sounds like it's backwards. Like, what are they doing? Um, and I mean, you know, the storyline is interesting. It definitely <laughs> updates it and, mo- and modernizes it. Um, and you know for people that that don't know like basically the the entire thrust of the movie is um Rocco Heifer et al um reconnecting um Mr. Big Head with his and his wife's um daughter who has since transitioned in the meantime which kind of caught me off guard because i guess in my head i was imagining like a little kids show and and you know not taking into account yep. the the years that have have changed where everyone watching it is now an adult um it was an interesting mm-hmm. yeah yeah they 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 definitely approached it that way like our audience has grown up now if they're really still into this like 
this yeah, is well, something and, that you know uh, this is I went a kind back of and watched can, a couple of because you know, the uh, the old cartoons kind of did the the like old school cartoon network thing where they're like here's a 30 minute episode but it's two short segments right and so you can find some of them on youtube and so i, I was watching back through because i was just like i i liked i liked the intention of what they were doing but at the same time i was like is it really like okay for the absurdity based cartoon <laughs> to be doing that like i feel like that that kind of taints what they're trying to do in some way or or did totally. um but but like watching the old things and then reading about the writers afterwards it's like oh this is in line because like the, the, Total, the writers room totally worked, it was it different was yeah it had a different basically tone. them making cartoon versions of things they experienced in their real life right and so watching those old segments it's like oh this is just like living day-to-day -day life as an adult it's just skewed weird um so it's like okay like that's that's in place like that's that's uh i guess my memories of of what that show was made me think that that it wouldn't have been the best avenue for, or a audience for it mm -hmm. based on how yeah my interpretation of old episodes were just because like i feel like that's a topic that should be handled with a little bit more care than you know the show with the turtle <laughs> talking about like it, it needs a little bit more um dignity than, than that but um but no i i liked how they they approached it yeah. and um i think that that's probably going to be the only one like it's critically well received but like doing like some light on my phone internet sleuthing it's like i i get the sense that this yeah. was not like highly yeah. watched like it was never like really trending um so i don't know how many people actually watched it all the way through because the actual storyline takes about 30 45 minutes to get to um or not 30 the the episode's 30 45 it, it takes the majority of the episode to get there and then they just kind of tie it up with a bow at the end because it's a cartoon and you can do that um mm -hmm. i will say the the invader mm -hmm. zimlin is kind of skippable um i really like invader zim yeah. the show and like i even re-familiarized myself with a couple of the episodes and it's like yeah, yeah the show really holds up this one of this <laughs> one like movie that they put out not so much um the the humor is just way different and you know it's fine you know i'm sure joan and vasquez has uh changed their sense of humor in in the uh 20 years i guess since it was on the air um it's kind of a kind of a um gross in a weird way like have, have you seen that one the uh no i, I haven't seen the invader zim okay yeah no it like so the <laughs> both of them and both it and Rocco revolve around the characters like kind of tongue-in-cheek coming back after 20 years right and um mm -hmm. yeah the they they where Rocco's has made it very clear that like yes these characters have changed 
they are, um, you know, characters that will age and will change along the way. Invader Zim, it's like, yeah, Zim was in space long enough for Dib to become like bio organically meshed into his chair, <laughs> but he's still a child. <laughs> Right. So it's that like loosey goosey, weird, gross um, humor. I do like the the body horror in it. There's a a fair Uh amount of body horror. So viewer beware with that one. Um, All in all, if you like Invaders, get Zim. Like if you like the show, you could probably just watch the show. Um, Uh Probably skip this one. Um, Let's see. And then... So my wife wanted me to watch The House of the Gucci. Oh. <laughs> um I So one of the fascinating things to me because like, you know, watching this movie there there were long stretches of time where I would like pull up my phone and go, is that how that works? Look at it. And it's it's interesting covering like corporate type things from this period kind of like uh you know movie studios back in the day up up through the 80s i think were more run like production companies are now in that they're much more autonomous they don't have these corporate overlords and then towards the middle of the 80s companies started buying up studios and and now they're operated like corporations unto themselves um Gucci was a family run business up through like the early (laughs) nineties, which it's, it's fascinating to me that, that like the amount of wealth involved in that, because they own like, like five or six people own Gucci and all the the profits that come through there. Um, So like as a way of documenting the way that certain timeframes were, it's interesting. Jared Leto makes some decisions in this movie with how he portrays his character. Um, like, apparently there's a lot of criticism from that guy's do- like real life children who are like, mm, he, he didn't dress like that. He didn't talk or act like that. Um, which is probably skewed a certain way for obvious reasons. Uh, Cause family. Um, Lady Gaga does a good job in it. Um, Kylo Ren. I forget his name. Uh-huh. Adam Driver. That's it. Um, he does a good job. Uh, I don't know. It's it's weirdly shot. Like, um, you know, Ridley Scott is is the director of this. And he... he Yeah, he directed this in The Last Duel in the same year. Which, yeah. I mean, he's he's directed two movies in a year before. Um, like it's not surprising it's surprising that he gets the amount of budget to play with and redirect two in one year but he's also Ridley Scott but oh is he? it's it's funny to me whenever he and like Martin Scorsese like pipe up with their opinions on on Marvel movies and mm-hmm. I, maybe no one's seeing your movies anymore because you're boring you know, it's, it's my, really my response to that. Because, like, if you look at Ridley Scott's um, uh, filmography, maybe I should have had this pulled up earlier. 
Um, like, let's see, the last thing that he directed that I would say, yeah, no, I would watch that again um, and have is... Yeah, Gladiator in 2000. Oh, that's you're you're cutting out a lot of Yeah, lot I'm of cutting out a lot because a lot of it like it's good, but it's not rewatchable. Like it's not like what his what my view of of what his description of cinema, like capital C cinema is. Like you it's it's interesting, but it's it's ultimately forgettable. Like um I don't know. I, yeah. I, it's always funny people with. Did, did with... we, did we talk about the last duel here? No, Is that we did it a previous so. week. No. Okay. Um, yeah, my understanding. Um, one, I wasn't really going out to theaters at the time, uh, and still not, you know, really for the most part for a lot of reasons. Um. But, uh, you know, even though I love going to the theater. But the advertising and et cetera in regards to The Last Duel. And my, my understanding is that, have you seen it? No. No? My understanding is it's a solid movie from critical reviews and getting kind of a breakdown of, of the film because I was kind of sort of curious. Um. But one, I I don't conceptually, even if done really well, the the premise of the story was not something where I was like, yeah, this is what I want to go see. I want to see these two guys argue about whether, you know, this was like a consensual act that occurred. Even though from my understanding... Yeah. It's dealt really well in the film because you get two different, you get three different perspectives. Like yeah. you get the perspective of each of the male characters, and then at the end you get the female character's actual perspective. Um, is is my understanding. So you kind of surround the story in three different ways, and um, people that were, you know, film, you know, film buffs, I guess you could say, were. Of some of them, uh, whose you know critiques I've kind of um, listened to before, and, uh, amongst other films, and kind of been in agreement largely. Um, like, listen, uh, you know, this is the kind of movie you know that people have been asking him to make with like big fight scenes and you know all in camera and like you know this is like a return to gladiator kind of form as far yeah. as the story but no one went to go see it. And it's like, well, there, part of that, I think, is marketing. Part of it for me was like the premise, you know, I, I don't really want to see a movie with that as like a subject matter, at least in how it was initially sort of yeah. uh, set out, even though they, they took a lot of care from the marketing to make sure to include like other perspectives and to make sure that it was addressed correctly from my understanding um, as far as like the script and whatnot. Um, but it's... Well, I'm always kind of skeptical when 
something receives a lot of critical acclaim and then no one else is talking about it for the most part because like you have to keep in mind like the people who are watching this are people who are given a free copy of the movie that they can watch in their own home um they you know are recommending a movie with without like the context of what it's about because people would scream about spoilers understandably i guess um i don't know man like three years into a pandemic and or two years into a pandemic and there's a reason no one's seeing your dark depressing movie about a guy who's defending his wife's honor after she was raped like that's <laughs> the concept of that movie is not something that will put asses in seats after a pandemic. Um, I'm yeah. sure it's well shot. Like he's a good cinematographer. Um, he knows how to st- tell a story visually. I, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's the times. Like people want to see you know bullshit car explosion movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I don't really think that they want to see the type of movie that he's making either. Um, you know, like, because I, I think I've, I've discussed here and with you privately several, several times of the discourse and, and a lot of, of places online with, with larger properties. And, you know, I, I always point back to the, the capital D discourse in, uh, tabletop gaming online, right? Where people rail against D&D to the point of not even referring it to it as D&D. They will go out of their way to call it that dragon game, right? And it's, a lot of it is coming from, like, people who are indie designers, like, not professional game designers, but, like, they, they still design games for fun and, like, will sell it on itch or whatnot. And this isn't, like, to talk shit about people like that, but it's, like, I don't I don't know if D D selling is the reason that your solo bespoke game about the stages of grief. I, I, I don't know that game shops would stock that. Um because D D is out. Like I you know, like the just because something's big and, and well received or, or critically well received, rather by certain circles doesn't mean that the masses want it because it's probably not to the, the tastes of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If you're going to market something with, uh, you know, a niche kind of subject matter yeah. or um, and something that's very personal, it, it may speak to a lot of people. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to be no you know, financially successful in that regard. Um, and there's a lot of other factors involved in that. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I don't think that having, you know, big Marvel movies, uh, necessarily in that situation keeps yeah. other people from, um, you know, going to see whatever it is like your movie. Uh, is you know your smaller film or your much much bigger film because yeah yeah well, and and like you know it's it's not exactly like Ridley Scott is the underdog in the situation because like I said like looking at the budget 
he had a hundred million dollars to make this budget with effectively three characters. Um, and it made 30 million back at the box office, which honestly, that's way more than I was expecting it to have made back. Um, and again, I'm sh- like, I know it's a period piece. It costs more. Um, I don't think that Marvel movies being a thing or why no one saw last duel or house of Gucci. <laughs> um, no, it just like uh, for me. Um, initially, that's what I was thinking before you mentioned it, but it wasn't the kind of thing that was like gonna get my yeah. ass in a seat, uh, especially you know with COVID being sort of a thing. And especially with COVID, like <laughs> yeah. yeah, like well, and and I it's a funny funny side note. Um, the internet's terrible and should be destroyed. Uh, the so house of gucci i have, have you seen it no you know generally what it's about uh about a family that runs a business um and it's the gucci business <laughs> it's pretty so much you're, it. you're never going to see it i take it um which it, probably not i'm gonna watch it you know if my wife is interested in well, it so there's there's a lot of things. I'm not so going to it's see. it's a um, you know it's a historical um, dramatization, right, of something that happened in real life. There was someone that I saw mm. online, and I I can't verify if this is the case or not, but in covering the story <laughs> of this movie, mm-hmm. um, they got numerous complaints apparently because um they revealed in the description of the movie that it's the story of it is about, um, I forget the first names of the characters. Um, one of the Gucci's being assassinated by another Gucci. Right. I feel like I I knew this, this was coming. Yeah. (laughs) Like to the point of having to like shut down everything. And again, I can't verify any of this, but it's like, that was in the news. Like, <laughs> you can't spoil a historical event, can you? <laughs> it's <Yeah>. spoilers. <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's like watching a movie about the grassy knoll, and then someone like, yeah. oh. Or like Titanic, spoiled like in there that Kennedy died. Yeah, what is this movie about? What's going to happen you know, to this ship? He's... <laughs> Wait, Titanic's about what? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what? Yeah, I had no well, idea. It, it, it does remind me though. Like I, I guess it was in recent enough history Sorry. that maybe someone was not aware no. of of how that story was going to turn out, but. Um, you know, my wife and I went to see Sweeney Todd in theaters, like when it was in theaters. Um, and we were sitting behind this couple. And, you know, this is this is a fame like this is a Tony Award winning musical. Um, the movie opens with a song because it's a musical. And the people in front of us, the guy turns to whoever he's with and he's like, they're not gonna sing this entire fucking time, are they? <laughs> oh, buddy, <laughs> you were in for a bad surprise. There is not a single word of this movie that's not sung. 
pretty funny. I, yeah. <laughs> Just, just the most cursory look would inform you on what this is and like what it's what about. What type of movie is it? Yeah. And maybe, maybe the lady that you're with is like, "Oh, I want to go see this," and she knows it's a musical. You could have just asked her. Or did you not talk to this? Did you not talk to your partner? Like, for the entire few days before you decided to go see this, you had just no clue. Yeah. It's, yeah. I <laughs> I mean, this is also back in the day of, of, you know, $10 movie tickets, and Fandango was just, like, right coming up. <laughs> like, you, mm-hmm. there was no, like, you can store your credit card with us because we're super secure app. <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, I guess the, uh, the last thing is I watched the first season of Space Force. Um, <sighs> I couldn't make it through the first episode. Me and my wife tried to watch the first episode. <laughs> so <laughs> let me tell you, so someone who made it through, I, and it's not a very long show. Like my reaction would, might lead someone to believe that this is like a 30 episode season, right? Um, <laughs> the the issue with this show for the most part is it, it's I don't know it's written from a place of um let me pull it up on TV on the uh, the Wikipedia. So yeah, no, okay, so the yeah, the first season is ten episodes. Second season is seven because COVID I think ate into their their filming budget, right? Um, or filming time that they had allotted for it. Um it's so it's written by Greg Daniels and, and Steve Carell, which you would think means oh this will be hilarious because he co-created the you know the office um he co-created king of the hill um so he's kind of got a uh, a history of of working on actually funny properties right but the the tone of this series is it it, it it's like it's written from the perspective of like the overly privileged white centrist who's ivy educated like right it 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 seems like um the early 90s episodes of snl right where it's like there's one perspective um being shown and it's even like to the point of they have a um like it's aggressively centrist like it's so it's it's anti-trump like in the, the whole premise of the show is like oh space force is dumb right which that like i had this conversation with my brother space force is a dumb name um the goal for it's probably a good idea because like my understanding is before yeah air force was responsible for making yeah. sure that satellites and things were not under attack by foreign countries and it's not something that was really highly prioritized uh-huh. over like jet planes and woo so it's good that there's something like that going up. I think it's a dumb name, but so the show itself is 
aggressively centrist, anti-Trump. There's satires of um, Pelosi, Schumer, mm-hmm. and AOC on there later in the season where they're doing like a walkthrough. And mm-hmm. like, I want to say like, and they're they're renamed, but it's very clear who they're supposed to be. Um, the AOC stand-in is um, caricatured to the point of might possibly be crossing the line into racist. Like, she snaps her fingers and, like, does her head and, like, she... And it's like, wow, someone, someone pitched this scene in a meeting and no one said... That's fucked up. You can't do that. <laughs> um, so I don't know. Like, if people like that type of humor, I guess go watch it. But like, I was just very surprised that something Greg Daniels uh, and Steve Carell worked on turned out to be such a lukewarm piece of butt. Oh Jesus! <laughs> um, uh-huh. You know. Yeah. Well, for me, like about the concept initially when it was set out i was like oh that's that's funny that they want to do a show like this this seems more like the kind of thing you could maybe get a skit out of yeah like well and that's why well, and that's why i wanted to see because i would i thought it was a movie initially like because i i didn't think that there mm. would be enough in there for them to constantly make a show or consistently make a show that's it's funny i thought it was a movie um but uh yeah no it's it's very strange to me how how they were they're able to get away without any because i i haven't seen any criticism about that character i haven't seen any real criticism anywhere of the show other than eh it's kind of boring (laughs) and who knows maybe people dropped off before this character comes in maybe that's why they they introduce these satirical characters um so late into the the season <laughs> is they're like yeah it's like mm, okay let's if people are not interested in this humor yeah. they're they're not going to drum around so we'll put them in episode 7 or 8 or whatever or whatever episode they, they show up in um but uh yeah so that's me so you want to talk about Resident Evil 7 now yeah let's do it okay uh let's see so some background information um oh this has been out longer than i thought it was um Mm -hmm. original release january 2017 switch uh may of 2018 um in japan only i think right is it on switch now yeah so i i think it's one of those stream Live gotcha. Yeah, and it's uh, 2020 and 2021 it was added to Luna and Stadia, which this is the first time it's been on Luna. <laughs> which is kind of surprising um that anyone would put a big game like this on Luna, I think. What, what um, platform is Luna? That's Amazon's that? uh Stadia. Does that have hardware? Is that just fully um, streaming? It's, it's kind of like Stadia in that it oh it's it's a hundred percent streaming, but it's um its hardware is okay. the controller. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I and I don't think Stadia is is Stadia a system anymore. Um, 
I think they're mostly licensing that technology out. Um, yeah, I want to say it's like a white label now, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't think there's a lot of investment yeah. in that. You know, they dropped their first party um, to oh, the yeah. studio that they had and laid a bunch of people off. Yeah. And then, Which, I mean, it was going to happen. Yeah. That's what Google does, right? Like, I, it's Google is really, really interesting um, in that they they scale up and scale down at like a pace that is just insane and and the fact that if it's not instantly a hit if it's just not printing bucks for them they're going to move development time somewhere else with with some other resource that they have and it makes sense but it's it you get you get like a from an outsider perspective you get sort of a whiplash from it i think Because they make such a big hoo-ha about some new initiative they have. And it's like, well, do I really want to invest in this? Yeah. Because if it's not absurdly successful, you're just going to drop it, you know? Well, and that's why I didn't want to try it in the first place. Is It's like, mm, I remember Google Glass. <laughs> um, I remember the Ouya. Um but uh yeah no the uh-huh. um well and i've also heard that the way they incentivize innovation is engineers get um like if if they actually invest money in getting something up the engineer who puts it forth gets a super big bonus on it mm-hmm. right so they're not really incentivized in making sure it works they just want it to mm-hmm. get flighted <laughs> because if it gets flighted they get a bonus <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a big flight. Yeah. <laughs> Roll service like that and have uh, conferences yeah. and, you know, uh, things where they're like, uh, you know, pushing yeah. this out to the public. So, I, honestly, I know from someone who's sort of tech focused, you know, uh, as far as myself keeping abreast of these things. I I sometimes wonder what those sort of things look like to the average person who maybe isn't so technology news focused, or if it's the kind of thing that yeah, um, you know, if yeah. I asked maybe my wife about it or like somebody else, they'd have no idea because it hasn't reached the market kind of saturation to where it's ubiquitous so there's no harm in it from like a google standpoint because it's not like you know some lady three doors over uh maybe bought a google stadia for her nephew or something because she heard about it because she wouldn't have you know it would have to reach kind of a certain level of market saturation so she doesn't feel like how i feel where i'm like oh i'm not going to do that because she just never even heard of it you know um so maybe it doesn't impact them uh i feel like for well i mean you know what's funny is the official community for stadia is on reddit and they had a post as of four hours ago called game wishlist mega thread so i mm-hmm. think it's uh, occurred to them yet that they've stopped supporting this <laughs> yeah i mean they still they can still utilize the technology and i think they're doing it with third parties like yeah so 
they can get third parties to come in there, whatever. And then you always have like diehards. So, um, you know, there, those reddits might be some diehard people that are still hoping for some more integration with, uh, (laughs) other properties. Um, and uh well yeah and and to to get back on track sorry for the tangent i should i should have not have done that an hour in. <laughs> um the uh so this is the first full-length use of what they call the internally the reach for the moon engine um it's the resident evil engine uh moving forward um it's the uh so 2016 it was tested at a demo at e3 um yeah apparently capcom Capcom reps took off their Capcom mm-hmm. badges and they had a separate booth and it was for a game just titled Kitchen. Uh-huh. Yeah, I remember this. Yep. Which which is fascinating to me. So the the Kitchen demo, um, for anyone not aware, it's it's really like Evil Dead themed. Like I remember at the time people being like, is this an Evil Dead game? Like who is this? Who's who's pushing uh-huh. this? Um you, yeah. They scale it back to the one location in in the kitchen. Um, I've played it. Yeah, it's it's because uh, yeah. I think you used to be able to have it on the demo. Um, I'm really surprised that people were seriously thinking it was Evil Dead and not immediately jumping to wait a minute. This is already set because the way that it's it's written. Because uh, remember, it's it's called Kitchen. Uh, if you look at any of the promotional materials, it was K I. C seven H E N yeah all in lowercase that's cute <laughs> um yeah so no one commented on the seven being used uh, which is kind of funny um but it, it was a well received tech demo um mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember playing through it's I mean it's basically just the kitchen section yeah it's just the um, kitchen section um I played the uh the um, that demo with the PlayStation VR helmet, I had a workspace where someone brought it in yeah. and they had the demo. So it's not yeah. really played. It's more like experienced. Um, it was really fun though, uh, especially with, because it's been a long time since I've done any kind of VR stuff. Um, I think probably... If you, I don't even know if you could really call it VR, like the yeah. uh, the Visual Boy, you know, et cetera, sticking your head in there. Because that's not really VR; it's more like a panoramic. Well, not a panoramic; it's a three D stereoscope, stereoscopic technology yeah. utilizing your two eyes and giving you a headache and stuff like that. <laughs> um, it just gives you a migraine after about eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, so. The resolution isn't great because I think it's like 480p, maybe 720p. But the experience is enough to where like you're basically sitting when you play it, uh, play in in quotations, uh, because it's just kind of scripted and you can kind of move your head around because your body's sort of impinged. And during the course of the demo, like your legs get stabbed (laughs) and you're looking down at your leg and you're like, ah. You know, because you have that sense of like, you know, 3D uh, self. And so um, you also have a big soundscape 
because the sound is pretty pretty effective. So you get to hear noises and creaks and stuff around you, and you see like a fight that happens right in front of you, um, and you can like move your head around in that regard. And so, yeah, if it wasn't such a big investment, I probably would have played RE7 on the PlayStation 4 with yeah. the VR helmet. But I just, I wasn't going to spend, you know, a couple hundred dollars to play yeah. one game. <laughs> and then other little small things that they released in the VR experience. Because there were like little small games um, that I know had some... Uh, Echoes of Steel Battalion on Xbox. <laughs> mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah like well and and so th- this one like the full-on game had uh 120 people working on it um koshi nakanishi mm-hmm. directed it uh he directed uh revelations the first one um and this is the first time they used a western writer mm-hmm. um so richard percy is the guy that wrote this he did the fear um games and the spec ops the line game um yeah, it's it's it reminds me a lot of I mean not graphically or anything, but just the atmosphere of like Fear Two. Yeah, and you obviously have some fear influence in this game. Yeah, yeah, Scary Girl. <laughs> um, you've get the you get the military flavor in there from his Spec Ops experience. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um you yeah, know, also the, you and, know, and Scary Girl. Really, the marketing kind of for this uh-huh. worked really well on me like i don't know if you remember the the go tell aunt roadie song that they used for it mm-hmm. um it, it really hammers home the like i don't know like the atmosphere of this game is being like in some way like twisted and like closer because like so yeah previously resident evil games have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you had six and then seven is like this is the first time we finally get what um they they wanted to do in the first place in a first person view. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, people people complain about that. But, um, um I don't know why. It it works very well for me. Um uh-huh. it's Well you don't get you don't get shooty shooty over the shoulder stuff and headshots. <laughs> it's like that's not this kind of game it's yeah exactly go go um and and uh yeah like i'm surprised (laughs) that this game did not get reviewed as well like this is another argument that i have with criticism it's just it's not like it's just a sliding scale like um the pc version got an 83 the ps4 version got an 86 as did the xbox one version um, I don't know. That seems kind of low for me. Yeah, I I feel like um, that's really undercutting what what this game was able to achieve. Like, especially knowing that the way, I mean, any any AAA studio does this, where you get um, bonuses based on scoring like a ninety percent or higher on Metacritic um and so yeah like no one got a bonus for working on this even though this completely changed the direction of an entire franchise um yeah i think that that hammers home that this genre the horror genre 
Um, and this kind of game, I think benefits from having like a context of yeah. the games, but also the genre itself, which we can talk about as well. Um, this game's not really for everyone, you know? Um, I remember you saying that earlier, that like there were people that had serious problems with this being scary, and it's like, what what are you playing Resident Evil for if you don't want to get scared? Just spookled a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, it's because it, it, it goes back to the home. Like, it goes back to the house. I mean, RE1 yeah. had the big manor and the mansion. Um, and if you... I imagine playing that game originally on the PlayStation 1 probably was spooky. Uh, yeah. Especially the fact that zombies could come out of the corners that you wouldn't see, etc. And playing the remake, which of course came before this um, this iteration, you know, you have like dramatic lighting and you got the zombies, um, but there's still like big monsters, you know, um, big uh big spiders and the dogs and everything so it's it's still there's more autonomy there and i, I think that's part of it too um even in yeah. re1 and re2 3 etc but even in re1 if we're going to talk about like the prototype of a genre you're playing officers that are on a special task force like they're armed they have specific weapons um that they can augment i mean they're gonna get like uh you know crossbows and they're gonna get grenade launchers and they're gonna get a lot of other stuff and have facility with that whereas with this right off the bat you're you're not really just disempowered, but your expectations are really well yeah. set as to the level of um, yeah. the scale of difficulty you're dealing with and the kind of autonomy that you have. Um, I don't know if we want to just go right into the, the game there, but talking about experience of spookiness, you know, you, you yeah. interact with Mia, you know, uh, you're travel all the way to this weird little spooky ass house in the tree you know you're walking through the woods um yeah it's really like evil dead during the day kind of thing um you know because you're just walking down this path you're seeing spooky shit kind of in front of you um you see like yeah you, you see like a figure walk in front of you that's jack and disappear and when you interact with Mia and you first meet her, she's down in the basement and she's just been missing for like three years. Um, and she's locked in the basement. Um, and she says that, you know, there's some other people there that, you know, they're going to find her. You know, that I, th I can't remember if she actually says daddy or whatever is going to find you. You know, he's going to find you here. Um, and she also... I don't think she says daddy. You know, she, I don't. She says something. Um, I'll have to look it up again. But she references like that relationship um, there because she's part of the family. Yeah. Now, you know, um, but then she obviously turns and transforms, 
and you have to fight against her, and it's a grueling combat, you know. Uh, even after your uh, your hand gets cut, you know, sliced, and um, you're able to like put her down with a uh, with the hatchet with like an axe in her throat. You know, she comes back up again, and then you get a gun, and you're starting to shoot at her with the gun, yeah. and she's, you know, she gets like a fucking chainsaw. And you use up most of your ammo on normal difficulty, Surprise. just trying to put her down. And you see that <laughs> gun, and you're like, oh yeah, I have a gun, I'm going to be able to take care of her. And then the game says, the game says, no, you're going to use most of your ammo it's going to take everything you have to just try to survive this. Um, she can one-hit KO you yeah. with this chainsaw. And then at the end of the engagement, you meet Jack, who just takes you out. He just doesn't even care about you. He just punches you in the face and drags you over to another, uh, I think, another part of the house, etc. Um, and so it's communicated like, oh, yeah. you're, this is not a game where uh, right off the bat, you're going to have like, oh, I'm going to be able to take this guy out. Like you feel like you're overwhelmed and it's, that's what it's trying to communicate. So people who have problems with that feeling like they're disempowered and, uh, you know, don't have an ability to combat fight back or um, know immediately what to do either because when she first starts coming at you with that damn chainsaw, like you can get the gun and you're supposed to like run over to like a door and it's, you're just scrambling. You're just trying to run yeah. and get your, <laughs> yourself the fuck out of there. It's so so <laughs> it's so good. And I think for people that have an appreciation of the horror genre and that kind of endorphin hit of like being in danger but you know you're safe. She's yeah. not gonna come through the screen and chop you in half. But I think some people's brains just aren't wired that way uh, to to experience that in like yeah. a, a roller coaster kind of way. You know, the like, oh, this is thrilling, but it's safe. But even yeah, a roller coaster is more dangerous than, than sitting down on your couch and playing this game. So. I understand why it's so intense because that's the intensity I felt when I first played it, and even that first interaction and what the game's communicating to you. But for me, it's like, oh, this is so good. There's not a lot of games that give me this, you know, that give yeah. me this kind of experience. And oh, so, exactly. Well, um, well, like my, um, you talking about the, the roller coaster, um, comparison reminded me that when i was playing through this like i was playing at night and so no lights on or anything right and um oh you got to i got the windows yeah we closed. have blackout I'm curtains this in our living night. room that that like it's <laughs> it's dark in there when we want to turn on the the tv and um my wife commented she's just like are you okay because i was sitting there and like i had the same response i have when i get terrified on a roller coaster where what comes out isn't like a low groan or anything. It It's like a cackle. And so it's very <laughs> off-putting to people around me. <laughs> I was just apparently sitting there going. 
um yeah That's no perfect. like this this one was fantastic oh, well and and i like um you know and i don't know how old the the writer is but presumably he had uh, experiences with with previous games in here because there's a lot of little like easter eggs i guess for other bits in the series like when you first get the shotgun the way you get it is exactly how you get the shotgun yeah. in resident evil one mm-hmm. like you have to find the 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 dummy dead one <laughs> and do a little weight oh yeah switch uh-huh. um yeah there's a lot of horror movie references like directly and indirectly um they're just to touch on like when you first wake up the texas chainsaw mm-hmm. like meal i think is is the yeah the, exactly. the first one that jumped out at me, other than Evil Dead, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and so you have so many different kinds of horror highlighted uh, in the initial presentation of this game. You know, you have like the gross, uh, gross out horror when like Jack's like feeding you that disgusting yeah. little bit of human intestine. Yeah. You know, if that doesn't get mm-hmm. you, there's like insects later on in the game. That doesn't get you spooky girls, which yeah. is a whole <laughs> horror genre in and of itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Scary houses that make, like, weird noises. You know, yeah. if you're wearing headphones while playing this game, it's like, and you, like, hear, and, like, you're looking around, you're like, whoa. You know, so it's all different kinds of horror, and it it's yeah. referencing... Uh-huh. You know, Evil Dead directly, where Jack's like groovy, you know, when he picks up his little powered shear things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I think uh, Ethan's character says something like, oh, that's not groovy or something like that. I can't remember. Um, I don't have to watch a replay. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, you have, uh, yeah, you know, Texas Chainsaw kind of things where body horror, cannibalism. Um, you even have like monster stuff later on in the game. So the reason I'm mentioning all these things is because it not only brings in like, um, like a, a return to kind of a scarier RE experience, but it's also like, hey guys, these are all the horror references. These are all the horror influences that we brought in to reinvigorate the series. And so horror fans will catch those things and be like, oh yeah, like that's a reference to that or that's even obscure stuff that I'm not aware of. There's apparently like a Romero movie where like if you get, it's, I don't know if it's like Dyers or Survivors or something like that. Um, and it's also about like people that get infected and whatnot, but like frame for frame shot is a shot where, um, Ethan gets like almost, he gets yanked out of the car and Jack just like busts in into the car and like rips him out and goes in there. And that's actually like a shot, like almost frame, like perfect from where it's sitting, uh, from one of those other Romero movies, you know, I can't remember what it's called, Survivor or something like that. Um, and then there's also like the uh, the scene where you have to reach into the toilet and like get some like goop key out. Yeah, which uh, that's super gross. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's also like Silent Hill. There's a scene in yeah. Silent Hill 
um, where the character reaches into the toilet and he has to like pull out an item. And I feel like that's like a Silent Hill sort of reference. Um, and then one of the, I think it, one, one of the designers or one of the artists was like pulled from oh, that would one of the, the, the PT staff, I think directly. Yeah, and that's why the environment, like the detailed, like the first person kind of thing, yeah. I think has kind of that really ultra detailed kind of realistic look to it as well. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff involved with that. But um, yeah, so for horror fans, which I'd say, you know, both yeah. of us solidly are, I think it it scratches a game playing itch that just doesn't get scratched very often. Um. Because even with something like The Evil Within, uh, which has, you know, body horror and, you know, um, you know, I guess psychedelic horror, uh, you know, reality turning horror, it, it's still, right. I think, a little yeah. more action oriented um, from your experience and like your weapon loadout and whatnot. So it's not this kind of experience. You know, it's, it's different. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, honestly, I, you know, spoilers, I think I was telling you earlier, uh, this is probably hands down my favorite in the series. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to top this yeah. one, I think. It's, like, it's, it's constructed very well <clears throat> in terms of what they're trying to communicate to you as a player, because, um you know the whole theme of this game really and or not theme uh the setting of this game i guess is uh tight corners like very claustrophobic very close everything is in your mm -hmm. face and close because it's first person right um yeah and they really emphasize that even in what would normally be larger stages for like boss battles in previous games like the first one that you have with Jack, where he's mm -hmm. he's uh, you're you're in the car and you're in a garage. Well, like you're expected to run him over, but like you're in a two car garage, like mm -hmm. it's very close, <laughs> and you can't get out. Like my immediate reaction was, well, I'm just going to go through this fucker, and yeah. no, no, because it's a video game. Like you're going, you're staying in this ten by fifteen foot square room, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're running away from him, running around the car, hiding underneath the car. <laughs> um, yeah, you're running away from him. Yeah, what you know? one of the I, I forget the name of the family member, but the the person that creates the like, mm -hmm. um, the, and when this is another horror movie reference, very very jigsaw like. Um, yeah, Lucas. Yeah, yeah, Lucas. Um, mm -hmm. He you know that entire fight like it's it's booby traps so you're like constantly down on your knees yeah. crawling under underneath things mm -hmm. you're inches away from a tripwire <laughs> like it doesn't yeah you have all the uh the balloons yeah. and stuff yeah, yeah. which pop in that <laughs> first room um we do just like oh huh you know, and so for, I think it hits upon, like, for horror fans, um, this is a great horror game, you know? Um, yeah. And so I think... It's probably the best horror game I can think of. Like, Silent 
Hill is good, but different. I think it's more sci-fi, honestly. I don't think it's horror. Yeah, that's more like for me. That's uh, like psychological in nature. Um, psychological horror, because um, there are some like mystical elements sort of at play. That's more internal. It's it's scary, like Hellraiser is scary. Yeah, right. Like it's mm-hmm. it's that same type of mystical related supernatural thing mm-hmm. like this other than the the like brief sci-fi elements in this um it's very it's very grounded and visceral feeling like i mean you know that like the the mm-hmm. storyline to this for anyone who has not played it um is that you know there's this uh this mold that keeps you immortal and even if you have limbs and shit hacked off um you'll be fine right and so whatever you say yeah 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 so so it um like rather than making you feel invulnerable like they still do a very good job of going oh no this is gross weird body horror like if you lose something you'll feel it <laughs> you still you still have nerve endings it just it won't kill you <laughs> um which is an interesting way to do zombies i think um because you know like i always just associate zombies with resident evil um Mm -hmm. and so it's it's kind of a weird interesting way of doing zombies kind of like the the cordyceps and um last of us is another interesting way and like i I feel like there's some crossover between that game and this one um Mm Yeah, there's definitely some uh, references. Um, speaking of Dying Light 2, there's an item in the game that's cordyceps. Oh, really? You use them to... Yeah, they're like little fungi. You pick them up and you can use them to make potions. And I was like, yeah, you guys obviously <laughs> did this. Almost and directly for Resident Evil. Um, spoilers for Dying Light 2, which, I mean, I already talked about it. There's... Uh, a great RE reference uh, in Dying Light 2 as well. There's this squadron that goes out um, that's trying to recover something, something of that nature, and there's only one survivor, and it's uh, it's Leon. Leon, and he's got blonde hair, looks just like Leon from (laughs) RE2. He's a young officer. (laughs) Yeah. Even even better, there's another uh, survivor that you interact with. But I mean, he's 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 no, he's dead when you meet him, and it's like, oh, you need to go get Chris. And you look at his dog tag. His dog tag is Chris Redfield, hundred <laughs> percent. It's Chris Redfield. That's fantastic. And, I know it's it's really great. Um. So they they know they play in a small sandbox with horror games and stuff like that. So I thought that was really cute. Um, Yeah, so going back to this, um, yeah, disempowered horror fans, I think that was the biggest thing. Because playing the game initially, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, And then 
I realized that, oh, this is a horror game experience, and it was like, oh, man, this is a fix. Like, I need to get more of this, but who else is going to make a game like this, you know? Um, and now you have uh, so many other so small indie kind of companies trying to make like PT clones or even games that are kind of like this on Steam and you got a lot of trouble and some people actually trying to make good experiences but they have small development teams you know it, it takes a lot to make a theatrical horror experience in, in a video game world at least so I have a suggestion for anyone that likes this type of game um so this is a top-down survival horror it's called darkwood all one word um so it's kind of an open world but you it's so it's set somewhere in poland in the in the, the late 80s i want to say maybe maybe late 80s early 90s um and you are basically like there's a story to it but you spend most of the game trying to survive like as soon as like there's a daylight day night cycle um and you fortify your cabin <laughs> before the weird things start happening and it is the playing this gave me a sense of unsettlement that re7 gave me like that similar type of like mm. <laughs> It's few and far between the games that that will make me cackle to myself in the dark uncomfortably. <laughs> mhm. Mm I mean, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. Um, I think people don't give. Um, yeah horror movies uh, and horror, the horror genre itself in a, in a popular sense like enough credit for the level of skill that it takes to do it effectively um, because yeah, it's also exactly. commodified in a sense where oh you got Freddy or Jason hacking up people uh, etc to me that's that's not really scary that's just like yeah. that's just a kind of movie um uh the scary parts about um uh you know for something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like that dinner table scene you know where they're confronted with the family and there's just like intense unease and like dread you know and not knowing what's going to happen and then the protagonist knows that something else is happening to one of their friends um, or has happened, you know, as far as like the cannibalism involved. And so that whole setup just requires like skill, except to, just to do really well. Um, and then if it does it really well, <laughs> there's a whole segment of the popular audience that's going to want nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's you know it's a thing yeah i mean yeah, you know i feel like some of the dlc which did you want to still talk about the main game did you have anything else to say on the main game um there's a bit we can pop 
pop in and out. Um, I think I kind of touched on because from a mechanical experience, like just playing the game, you know, is the game. You know, anybody can play the game. But my perspective, okay, on why gotcha. it was so yeah. Also, well, and and I, um, I, I feel like the feedback that Capcom got kind of led to them making the decisions they did i guess on the dlcs which you know admittedly i have not played i have looked into them and <laughs> watched videos here and there um but not a hero and end of zoe were the two dlcs that they put out um and like cons- well there's the lost tapes too oh i didn't see the lost tapes yeah there's tapes uh that are basically supposed to be other people's experiences like you get in the game of their like captivity yeah oh oh gotcha i thought you meant like mm-hmm. a thing compri- okay gotcha 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 yeah well and and you know the the dlcs are, are interesting conceptually from what i've seen but like i don't know if it adds anything positive to this game because it does such a good job of being a horror game that yeah. From from reading, like Chris's turns it into kind of a Call of Duty game. It's very shooty shooty. You're much more empowered. And it's, it's like you're Mia, like Mia in the last half of the game. Yeah. Well, and then mm-hmm. end of where she's like super skilled. Well, and then end of Zoe is is um, you know, another type of of adventure game almost like a so much fun. It's like, it's like it takes. Yeah, I've heard it's fun. It looks fun. I just, I don't know if that, like, as if, if you look at this game as including the DLCs, mm-hmm. I feel like including the DLCs makes it less of a good game. Well, different, different tonally. Yeah, different. Tonally. I don't know how yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. yeah, different tonally. The main game, I think, is really self-complete. And it's not like a thing where, uh, like with, we were talking about Dying Light and the following, that's a continuation of the same kind of experience, yeah. but kind of different. But it's not tonally a different thing. Whereas um, Not a Hero, which is kind of a, a snore fest for me, I still played it. But um, you're very empowered. You use weapons, etc. more like the Mia section. But by the time you get to the Mia section, because um, you get a flashback there, and I think I'm just contrasting that to Not a Hero, um, you experience Mia's uh, sort of journey on this boat and how she got you know stuck in this, this family basement. And you realize, oh man, how capable she is. Um, but by that point, you've struggled against these enemies for such a period of time and you're empowered. So getting someone who has just like an automatic weapon and like is able to just like, you know, utilize bombs, you're like, oh, this is great. You know, I haven't been able to do this against the molded like this way with someone who feels as capable. So it feels sort of earned. Yeah. Uh, and it's also like, okay, I understand this. Mia's obviously a badass. Whereas with the Not a Hero DLC, it's like, okay, I get to play as this guy who doesn't really look like Chris from the past, and he also has an automated gun, 
but it's it's sort of separate from the main experience of the game. It's not integrated, I think. You know. Well, so well, and it's funny you mentioned the Mia levels because I always kind of put those out of my head mm-hmm. because they're it the Mia levels to me do a good job of underscoring the world, like establishing. The, the canon of the world that they've created because yeah, connecting it back. Yeah, yeah because like otherwise this is just this comes out of nowhere but then it's like oh wait no his wife is a super spy hunting down like and protecting these like biological warfare uh-huh. secrets and it's like yeah i mean that yeah that makes sense there you it's, are re resident evil there you are <laughs> sure <laughs> That's that's where they were hiding the rest of Resident Evil. Spy from someone who <laughs> disappeared while while babysitting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, what what kind of girlfriend goes to babysit for months at a time? Like, <laughs> aren't they married? At this point, I thought they were dating, but I, I want to say that they're actually married in this game. I don't know. I know they get married. Uh, I thought it village, was his girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I thought it was his girlfriend. But... You and Mia, are they dating? Let's see. Uh, thank you, Resident Evil Wiki fandom, for... Giving me 60 pages when I need, like, a sentence. Uh... Very important that we pin this down. So she married him in 2011. Mm -hmm. She would, uh... Yeah, she married him in 2011. So they would have been married for this so yeah like his wife was babysitting someone quote unquote but she was in fact a super spy um which yeah like they like you said there's the resident evil i was waiting for (laughs) there we go connecting it back in you get you start getting you start getting uh slides later on those (laughs) x-ray slides and it's like oh yep yep there you are Things in jars, <laughs> things in jars floating. Got it. There's the R we know and love on occasion. Um, so for the Mia section too, and then they they uh, they have you really empowered with her, and then you know uh, Ethan gets abducted, you know, because this is after the boat. Which, by the way, the false ending I think with the boat was really great and really well done. Yes. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because when you have to choose between uh, Mia or Zoe, you both get into a boat. You remember that section? Yeah. Before you get to the big uh, ocean, you know, ocean liner. Um, they love st- they so bad want to create an ocean liner game. <laughs> That's come up so many times. Yeah. <laughs> Had another yeah. horror genre, oh, yeah. things on yeah. ships. Um, so they. Uh, they do a great thing with the false start. You know, the screen gets kind of dark and kind of black, but then the black mold could just comes out of nowhere and like upends you. So it's like, oh, well, the game's not over. Um, because if the game had ended there, I think it kind of would have been disappointing. Um, 
because then there would have been so many loose threads, loose endings, and then um, it also would have been like, oh, okay, well, I guess, especially if you'd chosen Zoe in that circumstance, because then you would have just left Mia behind, and uh, then you would have just paddled off into the sunset with, I guess, your new girlfriend and wife? Yeah. I guess so. <laughs> and that would have been the ending and it just, it would have fallen flat, but that's something that happens in horror movies is where they just have an ending because they ran out of budget or they couldn't figure out how to end it. And that's it. You know, it's like things just kind of remain unresolved. Um, so I think that's, that feels like a note to that. Um, but then you, you get her really empowered in that flashback sequence and then you're disempowered because you obviously don't, she doesn't have any of your weapons so you're having to like crawl away from molded and like sneak away before they can get to you and then eventually you're able to kind of get your weapons um so that was also uh, like a call back to the beginning of the game where you really didn't have like any kind of weaponry that could deal with uh, the enemies and whatnot. So, yeah. So I think we were initially talking about the DLC. What I feel like um, End of Zoe did uh, well, not only yeah. resolving the Zoe plotline, the sla- yeah, from but two, it feels like or, they yeah. were like, hey, <laughs> sorry, we had to keep this really serious. We did reference Evil Dead. Yeah. But we didn't get any of the slapstick yeah. and like the over-the-top humor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't get any of the over-the-top humor. Here it is for you, you know. Because playing yeah. it was just I was just <laughs> laughing the whole time. Because um, it's just so much fun. Because this this dude is just like he's so tough. He's just beating people up. He's molded up with his bare fists, you know. So great. And you get these little boxer effigies that give you power-ups with your fists. And then you discover, like, uh, you know, this special mechanical arm that allows you to, like, punch up your hits. And he gets it, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take care of him with this, you know? Um, It's great. (laughs) It's a different spin on it. (laughs) Totally different. But after finishing the first... uh, first playthrough of the game and then getting to play that months after because I had to wait. Um, I was like, oh, this is great. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, is, this is Evil Dead, the game. I would play this too. <laughs> well, you know, they're making one that actually looks pretty promising. It's an open world game. Is it an open world game? The only one I knew about was the... Um, there was one um, where it was like uh, an arena survival game. You remember that They're one? making that one too, yeah. Um, and I was like, I'm not really into this. I had, I well, I, I remember the PS2. The Dead by Daylight kind of thing? Yeah, I remember the, the PlayStation 1 had a game called, I think it's called Hail, Hail to the King. Um, that was mm-hmm. very like alone in the dark. And was actually legit creepy. Mm-hmm. Um Mm-hmm. It's always surprising when you can make anything that was on the PlayStation One um, <laughs> creepy 
or emotionally engaging. Um, I mean, yeah. A lot of things are creepy back then. Yeah. Polygonal busts and <laughs> snake creatures made out of, you know, um, six polygons. Well, yeah, and, and uh, I guess. Absolutely the, Yeah, like the, the last thing I'll, I'll, I have on this is basically things I've said the entire time is that go play this. Like this is hands down one of one of the best Resident Evil or my favorite of the Resident Evil games. Um I would argue probably one of the best games on the console generation that it came out in. Um and I, I feel like it got overlooked because it's the seventh entry and so I feel like a lot of people are just like, oh yeah, yeah. same old mm-hmm. tricks and it's like, no, it's it's For different sure. from what they've done before. <laughs> it's very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally different. Totally different. Mm-hmm. They did they did sell a lot. Yeah. They did sell a lot for their mainline games. I think six was like one of their highest selling games. And I think seven eventually was able to beat it. Um, so it did eventually get there. Um, it, it took a bit. It, it took a little bit longer, but it got there. So I think with eight, you know, since we'll be leading into that, they were like, okay, we get a big splash. Let's include some of this horror stuff, but let's let's not make it so scary yeah. and bring back some of the people that like shooty shooty stuff. And um, yeah. There's a world for that. I kind of wish, uh, you know, you can't make remake the same game again, so it couldn't be exactly like RE7, but there's another world where they could make another horror-based kind of game, because they obviously have the Yeah, and I'm looking, and yeah, Resident Evil 6 is their, or no, Resident Evil 5 is their highest-selling game. It sold uh, just under 14 million copies. Uh, six is okay. second place with eleven point six, and then seven mm-hmm. is ten point two. Man, Village has four point eight. I did not know it was that low selling. Yeah, okay, like Resident Evil mm-hmm. Three Remake sold more than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll. Yeah. Oof. Big oof. Well, nostalgia will get people back in. Uh, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Un. Yeah. Unequivocally, that Eight Village is a better game than the remake or A Three remake, hands down. At least for me, like. Yeah. Sales don't always equal, you know, quality. They just equal, like... <laughs> no, it doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just surprised that, that, you know, people claim they want a horror game, and then one comes out, and it's just like, mm, we're not going to play it. It's not the same type of game. It's... <laughs> Give it a chance. Give mm-hmm. it a chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's it for me. Um, did you have anything else? No, no, just to echo the sentiment. Yeah, I definitely play it, buy it, buy it for someone else, hand it to them. Um, if they like horror, 
you know, it, it's a good solid, it's a solid experience on the PlayStation 4. If you're one of the poor folks, still not able to get a PS5 for financial reasons or for scalping reasons. And it's also usually on sale on the PC um, and Steam. I played it when my hardware wasn't as beefy as, as it is now, and it was still a solid experience. The RE engine, I think, is um, really good. Um, and, um, yeah, if you yeah. like the horror genre at all, it's it's a must-play game for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, so uh, next uh, episode we'll be talking about Resident Evil Village. Um, and, yeah, the current book club book is... Let me look at my notes. Yes, it is still it. Because it's still it. It, it is uh, 1,100 pages. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a running joke in my mind. It's like, oh, it's still going to be it, it is isn't it? it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it. so it's, it's going to be the... Uh, the book club for a while i mean it's not uh -huh. scheduled to, to go up for another few weeks so it's fine we got time <laughs> um, but uh yeah so we'll we'll stewart and i will be discussing that one in the the mini series and the uh the two movies that came out um should be fun and uh yeah we'll talk we'll probably put up a, a, a bow on this i think we were talking about doing it the the grab bag um where you know, go through the the ones we missed because yes, there's two we did not cover. Apologies for your free content. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then some of the things that are not in the the line that that I don't know. I like. I don't know. We'll we'll see where where mm -hmm. we uh, uh, mm -hmm. match up and and don't match up on games outside of the canon. If you've played any of those, yeah, yeah. I played some of Re Revelations. I think I I bought Revelations two, yeah. but I haven't played it yet. Um, so. uh, and then we'll, you know, they're going to keep making these. So one of the segments I'd like to do is talk about where could they go in the future. Because <laughs> I yeah. have some things that I yeah, think I'd like them. I think to we do, can have, but yeah, we'll see if that actually happens or not. Because. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't think that these games, that given the amount of investment they require, I don't think they return as much. So they're not going to want to take as many chances because they've taken chances before when it was relatively cheap to make a game. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I don't think those games paid off. <laughs> it'd be. Uh, it'd be interesting. Um... I don't know the sales numbers in relation to like seven and eight, if that has to do with the critical acclaim difference. Because even even for horror fans, like eight is not seven in that respect. And it isn't as um, focused an experience. Um, it, though there's things about eight I enjoyed. Um, so I don't know if that has an impact on sales or if it just has to do with like, oh, this is new and different. Try this out. There, 
absolutely isn't the same kind of marketing push that we had with seven with seven you know had that kitchen scene it had like the viral like watching other people play this um <laughs> experience which mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, and they did like uh, I remember those YouTube videos of things like where you yeah you're watching people like, play oh in my VR, God. but I think there was like a Capcom <laughs> thing too from that demo experience, like watching people play it and like having them experience that and then like run out the room and etc. So there wasn't that same kind of yeah viral draw I think I think to uh, to eight, but we'll see. They're Capcom, you know, yeah. they have money, they can do other stuff and keep on making different kinds of games. I I do wish there was a world where, um, you know, we could uh, get something else like seven or, cause it, for me, seven was like, it came at a time where I was still mourning the loss of there being like a PT game, like a new silent hill game. Um, I didn't, I never even got to play the demo because it was pulled before I could download it. They delisted that shit real quick. Yeah. And I'm not going to pay $900 for a PS4 that has has a copy of it. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) So it came after I was nursing that wound as also a Silent Hill fan. Um, So, yeah. Hopefully get more like this eventually. Um, I may have to check out. It's Dark real Boy good. I think I think you'd like it. Maybe. Play it in the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, that's all right. See you guys next time. Absolutely. Bye. All right, that's it for me, folks.